Hello, readers. Coming up, it's my conversation with Dan Glickman on Laughing at Myself. First, I wanted to remind you to check out booksonpod.com. You can sort through past shows by episode number, book title, author's last name, or sort by category. For instance, select the Current Events and Politics category for episode number 81 with Catherine Gale on the politics industry. This is Catherine Gale. I'm the co-author of The Politics Industry, How Political Innovation Can Break Partisan Gridlock and Save Our Democracy. You're listening to Books on Pod with Trey Elling. We have had a fabulous conversation today about how Americans across the political spectrum are coming together around new ideas to change the rules of the game in politics so that politics works for citizens and solves problems. Hello, readers. Dan Glickman served Kansas 4th District in the U.S. House of Representatives from 1977 through 1994, was the U.S. Secretary of Agriculture from 95 until 2001, and CEO of the Motion Picture Association of America from 2004 to 2010. Currently, he is a senior fellow at the Bipartisan Policy Center, adjunct professor of agriculture and nutrition at Tufts University, and the author of his recently published memoir, Laughing at Myself, My Education in Congress, On the Farm, and At the Movies. Dan, thank you for the time. How are you doing today? I'm uh, just well. You've helped me technologically. You've, I've gone from kindergarten to sixth grade in about 10 minutes. So how about that? Congratulations on never having to listen to another one of those tones on your computer when you get a new yeah, email. Okay. You're living a new life now. So, uh, Dan, what inspired you to write this book? Well, you know, I've had a lot of different jobs in my life and mostly public service, but uh, uh, from agriculture to Congress to the movie industry and and it's probably I sat down one day and said, boy, I tell you what, I can't keep a job. Maybe I'll write a book about why I can't keep a job. But the truth is, is that I've been, you know, disappointed at the level of toxicity and and gridlock in our political life. And we have kind of a developed into a humorless society. I mean, it's like everybody's uptight. Certainly the last four years we saw that. But I think it even predated Trump. So um, I decided I'd write a book about the power of humor, particularly self-deprecating humor in my own life and how I uh, was able to navigate through the ups and downs of life and using what I call appropriate self-deprecating humor to, to lighten up myself, other people, and uh, in the process, get things done. So that's kind of why I decided to write it. And your understanding of the importance of all of that started out with where you grew up. What was it like growing up as a Jewish kid in Wichita, Kansas? Well, there weren't a lot of us, uh, <laughs> but uh, uh, frankly, it was fine. My parents were, you know, middle class family and uh, my dad and mother were had both had great senses of humor. We were active, but they were active both in the very small Jewish community, but also in the uh, non-Jewish community. My dad owned the local AAA baseball team, the Wichita Arrows. He was a big baseball fanatic. And uh, so we were, he was kind of a man about town. My, both my parents had great senses of humor, were unconditionally supportive of me, my brother, and my sister. So I say I had, uh, given all the other circumstances, a, a fairly normal uh, growing up process. Did you or your parents ever have any brushes with greatness considering that minor league team in Wichita was affiliated with the Chicago Cubs? 
Let me put it to you like this. Every time anybody got a single while we owned the uh, club, they called them up to Chicago. So even sometimes when they bunted foul, they called them up to Chicago. So we weren't there during the Cubs' uh, greatness. Their one year and the World Series uh, in recent years. Uh, and uh, so it was fine, you know, but uh, it was not a money-making activity for my dad. That's for sure. You also say in the book that your family was cafeteria Jews. What does that mean? Kind of like uh, not uh, very orthodox, uh, kind of like, uh, you know, uh, we didn't eat uh, pork at home, but on occasion we would out and uh, we kind of uh, were fairly liberal in our interpretation of our faith. So you were a bacon eater then? I know the taste of bacon, let's say that. <laughs> <All right. laughs> so your first government job involved something called AutoPen. What is AutoPen? So that I worked uh, while I was in law school for a U.S. senator. His name was Peter Dominic from Colorado, a Republican. I, I roamed the halls of Congress. Those days you could do that until I found a job. And working the auto pen meant that I'd come in about six in the morning and there'd be stacks of mail, hundreds of letters to constituents. This is before electronic communication. And I'd put the letter to the constituent in a little slot and then the pen would automatically sign the letter of his name that pulled the letter out, put it in a different, different pile. And I think people thought that it was uh, authentically signed. It was. It was signed by me and not by the senator. <laughs> and speaking of senators, how did Bob Dole directly influence your political career? He had a very great influence. Uh, we were we sparred politically at times because he was a Republican and I was a Democrat. But uh, I learned a lot from him, almost went to work for him back uh, when I was younger, probably would have had a different career path if I had gone down that road. But uh, he was uh, politically uh, and, and uh, substantively very easy to get along with. We worked together on agriculture issues. Of course, Kansas was big agriculture state, also big aviation state. My town of Wichita, almost half the airplanes in the world were manufactured in Wichita, uh, home of Beach, Cessna, Learjet, Boeing had a big facility there. So we worked together on those issues affecting Kansas very closely. And and I admired him. Um, uh, we, uh, we sometimes had dis disagreements, but um, virtually all the time when it impacted substantive issues, we got along. Now, while your entire political career was spent as a Democrat, early on you did ID as a Republican through school, law school, the early part of you getting into politics. Why did you eventually become a Democrat, Dan? Well, first of all, I was uh, in Kansas. Uh, there wasn't much of a Democratic Party, although we did elect Democrats to office. But uh, so my parents identified as Republicans, although they would not be Republicans today. They were too uh, progressive on social issues. And so I think I did it just as a, a matter of routine, a kind of a heritage. And then when I went to college, I went to the University of Michigan during the 1960s, which was a uh, school with a uh, uh, a lot of political activism. Tom Hayden, remember that was Jane Fonda's husband, yeah. was there. And uh, Michigan, Berkeley, and Columbia were the three schools that were the hotbeds of anti-Vietnam activism. And um, so, and then of course it was during the period of uh, uh, racial difficulties in, in this country. And I think I just, my views gravitated a bit uh, to the democratic side during that time period. And then when I went, um, to back to Kansas after law school, um, I 
really realized that I probably belonged more to the Democratic Party than the Republican Party. But I was always a, a, as much a political independent. I, I'm not like people are today. There are very few people in Congress who can honest, there are a few, but not very many who can honestly say they're politically independent, even though they identified with one political party. So you were a Democrat when you first ran for Congress, and you pulled off a major upset in 1976, really by getting boots on the ground and going out and meeting constituents in what eventually became your district. I recently spoke with Dennis Kucinich. He did the same thing in getting elected to the Cleveland City Council back in the 1960s. We're obviously in a different era now in terms of being able to do things like that. But what did you learn about farmers and agriculture when traveling around what would become your district during that very first run in 1976? Well, the district was, uh, you know, I mean, you're, you're from, uh, I think, the Austin area. I'm yes, talking. sir. Okay, so, but back then, Austin and Wichita were somewhat similar population. Now, Austin's a major metropolis. Uh, but uh, so I learned that, uh, first of all, I didn't have to spend millions of dollars running for office, which you do have to now. Mm -hmm. And I spent most of my time uh, walking door to door, as you, in, both in rural and in urban areas, and actually figured out that if I won the election defeating an incumbent, I'd have to beat him in rural areas. And so I became an expert in, expert is probably an overstatement, but in agriculture and farm policy and and spent a lot of time, had a lot of agriculture and farm support. And it made a big difference because when I won the election, I really beat the incumbent in farm counties, split Wichita, but one in farm counties. They they just wanted somebody who would listen to them. And I, I learned a great lesson in politics then is, is that, you know, we have two ears and one mouth for a simple reason. People like you to listen to them. It shows respect, even if you don't agree with them. And that had really helped me in that first race. What was the most pressing agriculture issue when you first took office? And how did you combat it? I think it was just low prices. Um, and uh, low farm prices, high input costs, and more than anything else, I, I showed concern and knowledge for the problem. And then when I got to Congress, I became a member of the Agriculture Committee and worked on farm programs that did their best to raise farm prices uh, the best I could. And of course, it, you know, the marketplace controls most of these events, but uh, it, just the fact that showing up, holding hearings and uh, listening to farmers made a big difference. Why was the grain embargo enacted by Jimmy Carter towards communist Russia in 1980 an important point in your political career? You know, when, when Carter imposed the grain embargo, I and others felt that it was uh, uh, going to have a dramatic, dramatic, demonstrable negative effect on farm prices and we would lose markets for a long time to come. So perhaps you could say I took a narrow parochial view, but I argued argued very strongly i worked with senators dole and others to try to mitigate the effects of that embargo um, and that embargo did a couple of things one is it caused prices to drop and the other thing is politically it caused uh, uh, democrats to lose farm support for a long time to come so i understood why jimmy carter did it because the russians you know invaded afghanistan ironically we're still in that kind of mess, but it, it didn't uh, really do much good. It didn't impact the Russians' behavior, certainly. Now, better understanding agriculture meant realizing its direct relationship with nutrition. How did you, Dan Glickman, positively impact nutrition during your time in office? 
Well, it's strange because the Agriculture Committee was one of the more bipartisan committees in Congress, still is, and it has jurisdiction over farm programs, wheat, corn, cotton, rice, cattle, hogs, you know, but also the food and the feeding programs. So the SNAP or the food stamp program, school meals, WIC, school lunch. And so it was, I was, and I was one of the more urban members of the Agriculture Committee because most of the members came from purely rural areas. I at least had a, a city of some size and about, about 300,000 people lived in Wichita or about 65% of the congressional district. And so I made it a point to become an expert in the feeding programs. And that coalition, that urban rural coalition, it really developed as in the agriculture committee and the farm interests and the nutrition interest worked collaboratively. And that coalition is, is actually still alive today. And Dole was very much a part of that. Um, George McGovern uh, was very much a part of that uh, and, and others. And I also saw the need to do it, not only because it was right, but because that coalition would produce political results uh, for both urban and rural interests. Did learning a lot more about nutrition have an impact on how you consumed food and drinks? Uh, not not probably as directly as it should have. You okay. can't see the rest of my body, fortunately. <laughs> uh, but, um, you, you know, the only thing it, di it did do is it, it led me to believe that nutrition was very much a part of health. And um, I, I've always felt that the medical interests in our country neglected nutrition and prevention. And, you know, you'd, you'd go to a doctor and they would basically treat you uh, for a disease. And uh, what you ate had very little to do with what a doctor or, an, or another healthcare provider would, would tell you. We're only just beginning to learn and to talk about the importance of food and nutrition as part of longevity and as part of prevention of, of disease. And we're also learning more about the science of food. And so, um, yeah, I'd, I'd say it, I, I didn't do as much personally as I should, but I, I became more of an expert in, in what uh, the research part of the agriculture budget ought to be doing on the science part. This was my favorite move of yours without even realizing it as somebody who ate a ton of those little Pizza Hut pizzas when I was in middle school and high school. But what was the Pizza Hut bill? Well, so Pizza Hut was headquartered in Wichita, was at the time. And, and so uh, this is a strange thing. To, to the most popular pizzas were at that time were pepperoni and hamburger. Now today there are a million different varieties of pizza. So to serve pepperoni and hamburger, uh, you needed to get an USDA inspector inspecting the meat on every pizza that would go into a school cafeteria. Well, that's ridiculous because, uh, you, and by the way, you didn't have to do that with frozen pizzas like Geno's or Tony's, they could be inspected at the plant. So I, yours truly moved to make sure that you could get fresh pizza served in the school lunch program. Uh, and what was also happening is kids were leaving school during lunch and going out and eating pizza uh, or whatever at, at a restaurant or a fast food place and never coming back to school in the afternoon. So I did kind of double duty. I was helping my constituent Pizza Hut and it was worth hundreds of millions of dollars to get fresh pizza served in the school lunch program. I was also helping to keep kids in school, which was important for those reasons. Now, I'm not sure. I'm not sure I helped the obesity crisis in the process. <laughs> but uh, you can only do so much in life. That's fair. What was your proudest accomplishment as an elected official that had nothing to do with agriculture or nutrition? 
Well, I was big in the aviation industry, so uh, because of Wichita, and they were having problems involving product liability. And every time a plane would go down, uh, you know, Cessna or Beach, these weren't commercial planes, this was general aviation, they, they would be hit by extremely large lawsuits. And so uh, I passed a bill uh, that uh, limited the liability not unreasonably. It said that if an airplane was over 18 years of age you, and a plane went down, you couldn't sue the manufacturer unless you could prove willful or gross negligence on the part of a, of a manufacturer. So we passed that bill. President Clinton signed it into law. It was very bipartisan. And within a, a week or so, Cessna reopened their single engine assembly line, building the, the smaller airplanes. And I mean, I did a lot of things that helped people individually, but that was something that was important. I also uh, helped create a, uh, a national preserve in Kansas to preserve the prairie. Kansas did not have really any, any uh, part in the National Park Service to speak of until that took place. You write that people misunderstand about what serving in the U.S. House of Representatives is. How so? There are a myriad of misunderstandings. I mean, in terms of what you're supposed to be doing. I mean, first under misunderstanding, I think, goes to the fact that the job is actually in Washington. Um, and um, I was successful in my career because I worked on legislation. Uh, today, uh, in, in recent years, members have been encouraged to spend as much time at home in their home districts with their constituents, which is fine because you got to deal with their constituent problems and you have staffs at home that help with Medicare and Social Security and those issues. It's important to spend time at home. But I don't think our founding fathers intended for us to be in our congressional districts most of the time. They wanted us in Washington working collaboratively on legislative issues. It was also a way to meet members, get along with members, and build a collaborative relationships so then you could work on other things. You supported NAFTA back in the early to mid-1990s, admitting that it was ultimately used against you during the 1994 campaign that you ultimately lost. Do you think NAFTA has been a net positive or negative for the U.S., Dan? Both, hmm. uh, to be honest with you. I think it certainly helped exports of U.S. goods into Mexico. Um, I think that uh, it didn't focus enough of, on the uh, uh, labor practices in, in Mexico. Uh, we didn't really develop much knowledge of the environmental impacts of NAFTA at the time. But it, and Mexico is our neighbor to the south, a very important ally to the United States. Um, I, I think we have learned since then that more needed to be done than just NAFTA. But, you know, I don't regret my vote for it. Uh, I, I do think that in, over the years, NAFTA became the whipping boy for every economic problem facing the United States of America. People would blame NAFTA, particularly my friends in organized labor would, bring, would blame NAFTA for, you know, for the fact that they didn't get along with their spouse. I mean, it got that bad. And, and so um, uh, it didn't help me, particularly with my working class Democratic voters. That, along with uh, gun issues, uh, was kind of a kiss of death for my 1994 loss. Well, it didn't take you long to find another gig with the government. In 1995, you were nominated by Bill Clinton 
and unanimously approved by the Senate to become the U.S. Secretary of Agriculture, a position you held until Clinton left office in early 2001. For those that are unaware, what all is the USDA responsible for? A lot of things, about 100,000 employees. So obviously traditional farming and agriculture issues and related conservation issues. So that's a big part of it. That's the big political part of it. But the biggest part of the Department of Agriculture is the U.S. Forest Service, 40,000 employees. And uh, I used to call it my little Marine Corps. But Kansas uh, was not known for timber cutting and trees. You know, we had some, but uh, it, so I had to learn a lot about uh, the forestry and, and timber cutting. And then the largest part of our budget was in federal nutrition programs, uh, SNAP and the others. But food safety uh, was, you know, a big part of it, exports. You know, a, a, you know, a major part of it. So it had a, a great jurisdiction and had a big research budget. In fact, the research budget did a lot of work on human research. Penicillin and the sulfur drugs were ultimately uh, not discovered by scientists at USDA labs, but was was they were implemented into the modern medical system through that work and then used during the Second World War. So it had, USDA had this great jurisdiction involving food and nutrition as well as traditional agriculture. And you and your team were responsible for helping to define food terms like organic and GMOs because each were pretty new back in the mid-1990s. How do you feel about each of those things now, Dan, starting with the idea of organic? Well, I'm, I was a big supporter of or, organic food. I think it, both as a congressman and then I helped develop the organic standards that are now used, a little round circle that says USDA organic. We actually wrote that. I'm not an artist, but my team <laughs> did that in my office. Uh, so every time you see that, you can think, hey, I did that. Thank you for that. That really helps. Look, organic food does not necessarily mean safer. It was a marketing tool for uh, people who chose that they didn't want uh, certain additives or pesticides or or uh, crop inputs in their food. I don't, you know, and I, I think it's a marketing tool and I, I buy organic and non-organic food both. I think it's it's helped the, the food industry. Uh, um, GMOs is, uh, is a technology that's used to um, modify the genes of food theoretically to put traits in those food to make them pest resistant or water resistant or grow faster or in the future, I think, make them health, make foods healthier. Um, and so uh, it's got to be well regulated. But I think that the GMO technology is important uh, for the future of food. And look, we use GMOs all the time in medicines. I mean, almost all the cancer medications that are being used are genetically engineered. Our COVID vaccines are made with genetically engineered uh, products. So, uh, you know, I understand why a lot of people have been concerned about uh, GMOs, but if properly regulated, they can really reduce the amount of water, help the climate, and maybe help the nutritional value of foods as well. How are you very nearly the most powerful man in the world? while in the position that you served in on Bill Clinton's cabinet? Well, certainly not in my house, I wasn't. But, uh, <laughs> uh, so they have something called a designated survivor. And uh, it's uh, when there's, there's a State of the Union message that what, there's the odd person out. Some of you may remember people listening. Uh, Kiefer Sutherland was the uh, 
designated survivor in the ABC series. He was going to get fired the next day, if you remember. And they, <laughs> he was a designated survivor. That's when they, if the whole capital's blown up, there's a successor involved. So I was chosen in 1997. They usually would choose the Secretary of Agriculture or Interior or Commerce. They'd never choose the State Defense or Attorney General. I used to say they would choose the most important secretaries to to be the designated <laughs> survivor. But they send you out someplace outside of Washington. I went to my daughter's apartment in New York with the appropriate Secret Service and military people, and I presume that I presume I didn't. I don't remember if I knew at that time whether I had the nuclear codes or not. If I had them, I wouldn't know what to do with them. But thank God I didn't need them. And then um, Bill Clinton gave his speech. Once he was done, he went back to the Oval, the Oval Office or the White House, and they told me that my mission had been terminated. And did I want to come back with the on the plane? And I said no. I'd stay here and have dinner with my daughter. I stayed. We, we left, there was a blinding sleet storm, January of 1997, no such thing as Uber or Lyft. And at that time of night, no such thing as cabs. And we walked about 12 blocks back to her apartment and I commented to her that just three hours before I was potentially the most important person on the face of the earth and I couldn't even get a cab. <laughs> and it showed you kind of the vagaries of life. You can go up, but you can fall just as fast. Wow, that's uh, very well said there. So after your stint as the Ag Secretary ended, it, it didn't take too long before you ended up serving as CEO of the Motion Picture Association of America. Now it's just known as the Motion, Motion Picture Association. Why was serving as CEO of the MPAA uh, a private sector dream job for you? Well, uh, first place, there was actually an intervening time. I was uh, I ran something called the Institute of Politics at the Kennedy School at, at at Harvard University. And while I was there, uh, Jack Valenti, who ran the MPAA, he was an iconic figure in the movie industry. Basically, he's chief lobbyist for Hollywood in Washington. And he decided to retire and he knew me from my old days in Congress. And so he he liked the idea of having a cabinet secretary succeed him. He wanted this stature. Now, it didn't matter that I was the agriculture secretary, which had very little to do with the movie industry, although I did make the point that in the old ag days, I grew popcorn. And then in my movie days, I sold popcorn. And I, he laughed at that little, chuckled a little bit at that. Mm. That that alone didn't get me very far. But, but um, you know, I mean, I'd been in Congress for a long time. I knew a lot of the issues involving intellectual property, uh, film piracy, and censorship issues. And so he decided to retire. And actually, it was he that uh, probably was instigated to get me the job. Plus, I had a lot of support on Capitol Hill because during my years in Congress, I had learned not to burn bridges. And I had a lot of Republicans who actually supported me for the job as well. Why was the job so exhausting? Well, uh, A, is that I had to learn it. And um, B, I had to work with a lot of characters who weren't necessarily the the sweetest people in the history of the world. There's a lot of tough group of people. I didn't, I wasn't with movie stars the whole time. I don't want you to think that Angelina Jolie was calling me every night and asking my opinion or anything, but I was mostly dealing with uh, uh, Washington based issues, taxes. Uh, but, you know, you're dealing with very powerful studio executives uh, who are under great pressure all the time to produce results in many cases for parent companies. And, you know, a movie might cost 50 to 100 million dollars to make and market in some cases more 
Friday night comes and it's a giant flop and that's it. And sometimes yours truly, the head of the uh, industry got some of the flack resulting from that. The other thing is, is that I was involved in the rating of the movies. I ran the rating system. So if a movie got a PG-13 or a R or whatever, you know, a lot of times there'd be pressure on me to try to make the ratings um, easier. And uh, but we had a system and we had to follow that system. And so, again, there was a there was a fair amount of pressure in that job. And, and um, I, I I sometimes say that uh, it was a, in some sense a harder job than being in Congress, because being in Congress, your your adversary today may be your ally tomorrow. And that wasn't always the case in the motion picture industry, although many of the executives were fine people. I'd like to spend the last part of our conversation talking about some current events and based on your your history and your experience in politics and beyond, just how you feel about certain things. And let's start with just the state of affairs today, the general state of political affairs. You talk about some of the biggest differences in politics now versus 40 years ago when you ran for Congress throughout the pages of this book. Has the mainstream press on both sides become pretty unreliable to report the news without spinning it to fit a specific narrative, Dan? The the short answer is yes. And the other part of that is the amount of media so ubiquitous that you can find about anything you like and you will watch that and you won't watch general media as much. So growing up, I would watch three networks and local uh, television and local newspapers were much more powerful and potent forces than they are now. The Wichita Eagle, for example, where I'm from, had, I believe, the highest penetration rate of any newspaper in the United States, which means more people read it per capita than any other paper. So, you know, it was it was just a whole different world. And today, such fractionated media, and again, people will watch, who are to the right will watch Fox, and to the left will watch MSNBC, and never the, the twain shall meet. And I, I think that's impacted uh, politics r- rather significantly. The other thing is, is that when I was in politics, because I was a Democrat and a Republican state, I learned that I had to be an independent in many cases. I, I had to vote pretty much in the middle. And many times I would cross my party. Today, it's very hard to cross your party. A few people do it, and they usually get a slap of the back of the hand if they do that. Uh, you've seen this with the whole insurrections issue or the, uh, the the failure to certify the elections. And, you know, people don't seem to vote what's right. They, they just, they not everybody, but I, I'm overgeneralizing a bit, but they will vote on what benefits their party rather than what benefits their constituency or their country. And I don't mean to be holier than now, but that's much more of a phenomenon now. Is there a way to combat that, though? I mean, it just feels so ingrained at this point and the amount of money in politics on all sides. It just seems to dictate the terms of how a lot of these individuals in Congress operate. Yeah, you know, I think money is part of it, although in the last election, we saw a lot more small dollar contributions than we'd seen before, which is, you know, a positive thing. Uh, You know, this sounds crazy. And again, I don't mean to be holier than now, but a little courage would help. You know, the the fact of the matter is, is that the job of a congressman or a senator, it's a great job. But you know what? There's life afterwards. There, There, you know, it's like I'm an example of somebody who lost and my life turned out just fine. And um, 
and you know, and so you don't need this job. It, it, it shouldn't be so important to you that you'll risk everything just to keep it forever and ever and ever. And 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 of course, in the way we district uh, congressional districts. Uh, it hurts that because what it does, it tends to put districts in one party or the other. So you don't have to appeal to the middle. I mean, there are a lot of causes to this particular issue, but courage and leadership has a, have a lot to do with this. And, uh, and uh, that's just something that's inbred and the public just has to demand it. On the subject of agriculture, do we as a country make and as a result waste entirely too much food? Well, we certainly waste about a third of the food that we prepare, and that's not just food that's uh, grown, but food that's prepared, that's eaten in restaurants, that's bought in the house. And a lot of that has to do with the fact that, by and large, food is cheap in this country relative to other countries and relative to other expenses, and, um, and we have an abundance of it. And uh, so, um, and we need to find better ways to deal with food waste uh, in terms of uh, dealing with poor people during the COVID crisis, there was a really strong effort by the food industry and, uh, and restaurant industry to try to get uh, excess food uh, to people who needed it. And the food banks did a, did a very good job of it. But, but I, I just think it speaks to the amazing productivity of American agriculture that we are able to produce so much food in this country with so few numbers of people. There are only about one and a half percent of the people that are actually producing the, all this food just think uh, the turn of the uh, well in the 1950 it was about 30 percent of the people producing the food and and so it's it has to do with productivity of American food. Do you think the treatment of and conditions surrounding livestock on the industrial level is good or bad for the animals and food products that they are responsible for? That's a tough question. I mean, I I, I think that uh, all parts of agriculture are going to have to learn to cope with climate and environment much more than they do now. And obviously, animals contribute a lot to the expelling methane into the atmosphere. And and uh, there's an awful lot of uh, pesticides and herbicides and, and insecticides that are used in, in the growing of crops. And we're beginning to realize that agriculture has a big role to play in reducing um, the, those additives and also using water most efficiently. 70% of the water in the world is used to irrigate crops and feed animals. 30% is used for everything else, including probably the water that you have on your desk right now that you will drink after this particular interview. So, um, so agriculture has a big role to play, but it's not the major cause of our problems, but it, it certainly has to be a contributor to the solution. And last question, Dan, you talked throughout this book about icebreakers that you've used throughout your life, little bits of humor to get a conversation started. Is there a current icebreaker that you use more than the others right now? Well, I use a lot of my dad's jokes. Some of them are inappropriate to probably be on a podcast. Let's hear one inappropriate joke, Dan. This show is not afraid you know, to you know, cuss well, every once in a you while. Know, I mean, I, well, first of all, I, I used to think that I had the best singing voice in the world, and <laughs> and uh, I don't. 99% of the people don't think I do. But I sang a lot. And I'll never forget, I went on this trip with members of Congress to Nashville, and we went to Tammy Wynette's house. 
and the, the, my, the crowd of congressmen urged me to sing, Oh, Lord, it's hard to be humble. And <laughs> after I sang it, Tammy looked at me and she said, I have a piece of advice for you. Keep your day job, please. <laughs> uh, so I, and, and you'll find singing is part of it. But, but my, my dad used to tell a bunch of jokes. He told one, he says, you know, your mother and I have sex almost every night. And people would say, really? And he'd say, yeah, almost on Monday, almost on Tuesday, <laughs> almost on Wednesday. Those were the kind of jokes that we lived with. Uh, you know, uh, what happened to the sun when it went down at night? The next morning I woke up, it dawned on me. You know, mm. there was this kind of, I, 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 my, my humor is a little bit more natural, a little bit more like my mother's, but, uh, uh, and, and my dad, when I was at the Department of Agriculture, my dad would send me jokes and, um, uh, by fax machine, which they called back then. I don't, I don't even know what they call it anymore. It's not a fax, probably. But, but, uh, and I had a staffer who would come in, and some of the jokes would be inappropriate. So we bought a shredder so that nobody could ever see those particular <laughs> jokes. He was from a different environment, a different era than I was, certainly. Got to appreciate the old school dad jokes. He is Dan Glickman, served in Kansas' fourth district in the U.S. House of Representatives from 1977 through 1994, was the U.S. Secretary of Agriculture from 1995 until 2001, and CEO of the Motion Picture Association of America from 2004 to 2010. Currently, he is a senior fellow at the Bipartisan Policy Center, adjunct professor of agriculture and nutrition at Tufts University, and the author of his recently published memoir, Laughing at Myself, My Education in Congress, On the Farm, and at the Movies. Dan, thank you so much for the time today, and thank you for this wonderful book. I'm glad to be with you. Join me next time for another episode of Docs on Pod with filmmaker Christine Stolakis on her new Netflix documentary, Pray Away. It's all about the past, present, and damage done by the gay conversion therapy movement. Thanks to Gentleman Jesus for the intro and outro music. Hear more of his work at GentlemanJesus.com. And thanks to you for hanging out. You can listen, learn, and follow for free at BooksOnPod.com. For Books on Pod, I'm Trey Elling. Good day. Good day.